If you're able, would you remain standing for a moment longer and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to read verses 1 through part of verse 8. I'd love for us to be a Bible-carrying church. Everybody has their Bibles where they uh, navigate through it uh, and know what to do with it and, and so on. There's something about knowing, oh, it's on the left top corner of that page and being able to find it that, that way. Ephesians 5, starting verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. As we consider it this morning, we pray that you open our eyes to see glorious things concerning you, concerning your truth and your church in it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I titled uh, this sermon, uh, Walking Love Part 2. And you might wonder, where's part one? Part one was preached on February 16th of uh, this year. So I know you all remember it, so I don't have to review it, and uh, we're good to go uh, from here. As we get to chapter 5, verse 1, Paul picks up here, in this passage that we just read this morning, what he began in chapter 4, verse 1. And he ties the walking in chapter 4, verse 1, with the walks in chapter 5 throughout the chapter. Look at what he says in chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. And then when you come to chapter 5, he, t- he develops that idea of walking. And he tells us in verse 1 that we are to walk in love. In verse 8, he tells us to walk as light. And then in verse 15, he tells us to walk circumspectly. Uh, The point that Paul is making here, after laying the foundation of the Christian faith for three chapters, in chapter 1 through 3, he's telling us what the Christian faith is. He develops it. Chapter 1, God prepared a plan before the world began. Chapter 2, God executed that plan through Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, that plan is applied by the Spirit, bringing Jew and Gentile together into one body. And because of all those truths, Paul says in in chapter 4, verse 1, walk in a certain way, behave in a certain way, live in a certain way. And I think it's important that Paul puts Christian faith in terms of walking. He doesn't say in chapter 5, verse 1, sit in love. He doesn't say rest in love. He doesn't say take a break in love, but he says walk in love. Which it tells us then that the Christian faith is an active 
faith. An act of faith is not something that we sit there and happens to us. But it also tells us that it is an active, progressive, and perhaps slow life. He doesn't say run in love. He doesn't say sprint in love. He doesn't say drive really fast in love. But he says walk in love. The constant, everyday living in light of the love of Christ for us. And that's important for us to think because our sanctification, the work of God in us as we live our lives, is a work in which God gives us grace and we cooperate with that grace. You may have heard the expression, let go and let God. Uh, people may have quoted that to you, or you may have quoted that yourself. That's out of the Kazakh revivals in uh, England. And sounds super pious, but it's not biblical. We're not supposed to let go and let God. We're supposed to let God and then work really hard at it. Those two things are true in our sanctification. For example, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul brings those two things together. Starting at verse 12, where he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. Now, the New Testament uses the word salvation in many different ways. We tend to use salvation as that moment in which we come to faith in Jesus, and from that moment on, we belong to Christ, and if we die, we go to heaven. But the Bible uses the word salvation to mean the entirety of our journey from being dead to sin, dead in sin, to be made alive in Christ, to live a life that brings glory to Him, and to be glorified in the resurrection. And that's the sense that Paul uses here, the sense of our sanctification. So we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That's verse 12. But now that's verse 13 goes. For, because, it is God who is at work in you, to will and to do of his good pleasure. The grace of God compels us to walk, to be active in our faith. Our faith is not one that sits back. Our faith is not the one that just waits for things to happen. Our faith is the one that's actively pursuing holiness in love of the love of Christ. And notice that all this walking that is in chapter 5 is the description of how we imitate God. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. That word imitator is the word where uh, we get the word mime or mimic from. And that's what we're called to be, to be imitators of God. And in telling us how to imitate God, Paul describes that imitation in very concrete terms. It's not this abstract, hard to figure out. It says, imitate God. And how are you going to do that? Well, you're going to walk in love. You're going to walk as light. You're going to walk seriously. And under each one of those, there's some serious things, some concrete things that we are to, get, to do. God has given us abundant, concrete directions on how to imitate Him. And that involves the way we believe, the way we think, the way we act, and the way we feel. All those are ways that we imitate God. And in our passage, as we look at walking in love, the pattern of the love we are supposed to walk in is Christ's love for us. Look at verse 2. And walk in love 
As Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling flavor, savor. In our passage, and later on in this chapter, Christ's love is described as his giving himself for us as a sacrifice. That's how Paul describes it here. Love, walking love, and the pattern you have is Christ loving us by giving himself for us. And this sacrifice of Christ has two aspects that we need to consider. The first one is that this sacrifice is a substitutionary sacrifice. That's just a complicated way of saying that when Christ died, he died the death we as sinners deserved. He died in the place of sinners. And if you believe in him, if you believe that he did that for you, then he died in your place. That's what it means to be substitutionary. That's what he's done for us. And because of his offering, well, because Christ offered himself, then the Father looks at us who believe that Christ did that for us and says, you're forgiven. Your sins are not held against you. My wrath is not going to be poured upon you. And that's why Paul can say, can say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that for he, that is God, made him, that is Christ, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made his righteousness. So Christ died as a sacrifice for us in our place. By the way, you see that last little expression at the end of, of verse 2, where Paul says, a sweet, smelly, smelling aroma? The Father accepted Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf. It was a sweet, smelly aroma in his sight. Have you ever walked into a place and the smells just overwhelm you and it's just pleasing? And, or it brings back a memory, and it just touches your heart, and you, you please with that smell. That's kind of the picture here, that when Christ sacrificed himself for us, the Father said, that pleases me. I'm pleased with that, and because of that, I'm going to save my church, and that's you. That's one aspect of this sacrifice of Paul, but there's, of, of Christ. There's a second aspect, and that is that it's an example for us. Liberal Christians, starting in the early 1900s, denied that Christ died for sinners, that he died only as an example for us, and that we should look for Christ as an example and, and follow him. And they, so they swing over here. And then conservatives, reacting against that, kind of forget a little bit that Christ is also the example, not just our sacrifice. It is. He is a sacrifice, a substitutionary sacrifice. We need to emphasize that. But he's also our example. We are to look to him and see how we are to love other people. And twice, Paul, in, in his writings, Paul explicitly uses Christ's giving of himself as a pattern that we are to follow in our relationships. That's the pattern. That's how we walk in love, is following the pattern of giving that Christ had, the example he is to us, and living that out in our relationships. In, with everyone in general, not in... It, it, it covers all our relationships and with some people in, people in particular. Remember the great Carmen Christie, the great hymn of Christ in Philippians chapter 2, starting verse 5, going all the way to verse 11, where Paul says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, that he, 
being equal with God, did not think it would be something to grasp on, but he lowered himself, he humbled himself to become like one of us, and he lowered himself even more to die the death on the cross. It's a great passage. There's, it's, it's, it is a hymn in itself. There's all kinds of music written about it. We know it. We memorize it. But all that that is is an illustration in, the chapter, in chapter 2. The point that Paul is trying to make there is that in verses 2, 3, and 4 he says, Consider others. Let not only your interest drive you, but let the interest of others also drive you. Be humble before God and serve one another. And that's the example of Christ there. He, who was God himself, did not think it was below him to serve you. Why should we ever think that is too much for God to ask us to walk in love by giving ourselves to other sinners just like us? If Christ, who is God, did, what keeps us from doing that? Selflessness engenders humility that allows us to walk in love after the pattern of Christ. But also, later on in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul uses that same example of Christ giving himself to, to, to give us the pattern by which husbands are to love their wives. In Ephesians 5.25, it says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Selflessness that engenders care. You know, the husband might say, oh, but you don't know my wife, Pastor. If you knew her, you'd know that is asking too much. Well, do you think God knew you, husband? Do you think God knew your, your heart? Do you think he knew all the dirty, dirtiness, the darkness, the sinfulness, the whatever other bad words you can put about you, and yet he gave his son for you? That's the pattern that we are to follow as husbands in walking in love. As a husband, we cannot walk in love and not love our wives selflessly. Okay, If that's in your mind, that you can somehow walk in love and not love your wife in a selfless way, then you are irrational. That, those two things cannot coexist. And Paul uses this imagery of Jesus being the pattern for our love because Jesus himself used that. In John 15, verses 12 and 13, Jesus says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Right? That's the command. That's the pattern. Love one another as I have loved you. And then he tells us how he loved us. In verse 13, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. It is in this second way, that we are to walk in. This way that Christ has set for us, this example of selflessness, by giving of ourselves to others. By walking in love, we are not sacrificing ourselves in the place of other people. Our giving of ourselves in love is not substitutionary or meritorious. We're not earning brownie points with God by doing that. But it is a reflection of God's love for us in Christ. And if you know the love of Christ then you're going to walk in love with the pattern of Jesus being your example. And to walk in, in love is to actively live our lives in a way that demonstrates the self-giving life of Christ. Everything about us, everything we do, 
Everything we think, everything we believe, everything we feel should be a demonstration of Christ's selfless love for us. Remember what Paul says in Romans 12, verse 1? That we are to offer our bodies, and there the bodies mean our whole self, as a living sacrifice. Not a dying sacrifice. We're not dying in other people's place. But we're living for other people. It's a living sacrifice. And he says, which is your reasonable service. And the word reasonable there is it's really the word logical. It's your logical service. If Christ is your Savior, you can't escape the logic that then you're going to live a life that is dedicated to Him. And service there is a service of worship. And so all of your, our lives will walk in love as a service of worship, as a, just a logical conclusion of following Christ. And all these characteristics of Christ's love for us are outlined in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where the apostle says, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Love is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Very concrete way that Christ has given us for us to walk in love. And we often hear this passage read or preached in weddings, but this is not a wedding passage. It can be used there if one wants, but it's not a wedding passage. Uh, It's chapter 13 shoved between 12 and 14, which again is just an obvious statement on my part. But we need to think of chapter 13 in that context. 12 and 14, Paul is answering their questions. The Corinthians want to know, who, who has the best gift? Do I have the best gift? Does Jonas have the best gift? Who has the best gift? And Paul talks to them and says, but you know what? You have not considered the greatest gift, which is love. That is what you need to pursue as followers of Christ, is walking love as defined in the Scriptures. And it applies in, to all relationships and is directed... Do you notice that every passage to love in the Bible is directed to the one doing the loving? There's no passage in the Bible that says, this is how you demand love from others. Ever notice that? It's not there. Every, every passage that regards love it addresses the one doing the love. And that's how we need to look at it. These passages are not for us to judge how other people are loving us. These passages are for us to look at ourselves and see how am I walking in love as Christ loves me towards other people. And that's how we look. Sure, some people may need help and we may need to confront them, but we only do that in a Matthew 7 sort of way where we first have looked at our own hearts and took out the massive beam of our lack of love for others. And when we humbly have done that, then we're ready to come and help somebody else. But we are called to walk in love. But Paul doesn't stop there. Not only he states positively what it means to walk in love, he also states negatively. If you're walking in love, these are things that are not present in your life. And he starts that in verse 3. Look at verse 3. But fornication and all uncleanness... Or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Notice that but there in the beginning of verse 3. That but is a, is a contrast. 
Paul says, walk in love. And these things that I'm listing here are contrary to walking love. These are the anti-walks. These are the anti-love actions. And he says, these things are not to be found among you. And the first of three, there's two lists, three and three, in verses three and verse four, two sets of three. And the first item in the first list of the anti-walk or the anti-Christian behavior is fornication. This is sexual activity by unmarried people. It goes beyond just having intercourse. It includes all sexual immorality. The newer translations, uh, other than New King James, often use the word sexual immorality for this particular word. And the New King James, for some reason, doesn't. In some places, does. For 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1, it does use sexual morality for that same word. But that's really what's talking about here, that walking in love cannot happen as you are involved in sexual immorality. That, that, those are contradictions. That can't, can't happen. Now, often younger people who are in romantic relationships might think that the ultimate demonstration of their love for one another is to have sex. There is, there is this idea that their love for one another will sanctified sanctify their premarital uh, sex. The truth is, however, that a premarital sexual relationship is the opposite of love, according to the scriptures. It's the very opposite of what it means to love, is to engage in these activities that Paul lists here in Ephesians 5, verse 3. As a matter of fact, Paul says, hey, I know what the will of God is for you in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It says, The will of God for you is your sanctification, that each of you that, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. Our growth in God in, includes that. And then if it wasn't enough, Paul adds the word and all uncleanness. Other translations uh, render this word as impurity. Now, Paul here broadens the way of thinking about sexual sin because fornication could be taken to only talk about the sexual act by some, but uncleanness opens that thinking up and includes all sexual sins. Christians may not be willing to go all the way, but will do things that will stop short of that. And Paul says, paraphrasing here, if you do things that are meant to be the ramp to the highway of sex, you are just getting ready to get in the highway. Nobody, nobody parks the car on the on-ramp of the freeway, revs its car just to do that, to stay there and never get on the freeway. Right? That would be crazy. But that's what sometimes we think we can do in the area of sexual purity. And this term here, both fornication and uncleanness, includes the use of pornography. Walking in love and using pornography cannot coexist. You either are a pornographer or you're a Christian. Now, I'll have a little more to say in a moment about that. I'm not saying that we, are called, we must be completely morally perfect, but we cannot be okay with thinking that we can be a pornographer and a Christian at the same time. That's a thought that cannot be in our minds. 
And then if it wasn't enough, Paul makes it even bigger and adds the word covetousness to the list. This is the ultimate anti-love of these actions. This is an even broader word that includes the realm of thoughts. See, covetousness is wanting what others have to the point of being willing to sin to get it. Covetousness is the displacement of Jesus from the center of our heart and substituting that with some sort of idol. And that's why often the terms covetousness and idolatry are used to refer to the same sin. Right? Paul says covetousness, which is idolatry. And in that way, the first commandment and the last commandment are united together. Covetousness always results in idolatry. And Paul says, because these behaviors are way and ways of thinking are contrary to walking love, they are not to be named as possible and acceptable behaviors for those who have been redeemed by Christ. Look at verse 3 again. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as it is fitting for saints. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't talk about these things, because otherwise then I would be sinning about uh, preaching this sermon since we're talking about these things. But it means that the actual doing of it is not found among Christians. To name it is to identify something. It's to say, this is here. As we look at it, this is right there. And what Paul is saying is that as we look at the Christian life, you shouldn't be able to name that, meaning those things should not be present there, because that's what is fitting, that's what's proper. The absence of these things among the saints is proper. And that, that even opens up more things in verse 4, where Paul gives us a second list of things. Look at verse 4. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, jesting which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Yes, it's the word, that, this idea of filthiness. This is behavior that rightly brings shame upon one acting. There are things that we do that we should be ashamed of. There's this movement among Christians to remove shame completely from our thinking. But the Bible says that we should be ashamed of sinning. There's a certain amount of shame that's part of repentance. And Paul says, you should remove from, if you're going to walk in love, you should work at removing things by God's grace that you are ashamed of, rightly ashamed of. It includes the idea of obscenity. Paul is saying that the saint's life will not be defined by obscenity. You're not going to be identified as an obscene person. And then the last is foolish, oh, not the last, but second is foolish talking. Literally, moronic words. You should refrain, which all of a sudden is, seems out of character to the list. That's, but Paul says this is important, that if you are going to walk in lock, don't be a fool. Don't talk like a fool. I think a lot of our politicians could take well in listening to uh, this statement. Things, these are things that the fool in Proverbs would say or talk about. And we are not the fools in Proverbs. We are the wise in Proverbs. These are the things that shouldn't be talked among unbelievers, or about believers. And then he ends the list with this coarse jesting, crude jokes, innuendos. The point is the Christian does not laugh at what God says is sinful. That's not what entertains us. That's not what we talked about. We talk about things that bring glory to God. And then Paul says, instead of being identified by these sinful things, we will take, we walk in love by giving thanks. Let's see that at the end there, verse 4. 
which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. And Paul offers giving of thanks as a solution to these all other things. It seems simplistic, but it's real. You walk in love by giving walk in love by giving thanks. You fight covetousness, you, you fight sexual immorality by giving thanks. For example, giving thanks deals with covetousness by focusing our attention on the blessings God has bestowed upon us instead of the things we think we should have done for us. And the truth is, no matter how miserable your life is, you have all kinds of temporal blessings that you can be thankful for. And I don't mean in the Pollyanna way. Pollyanna, I don't know if you guys ever read it. My mom made my sister read all those books. I'm thankful that uh, she was sexist that way, that I didn't have to read them. But she made my sister read all those books. But Pollyanna had this unrealistic view of optimism. That's not what God calls us. But he calls us to be thankful for the blessings that we have in our lives. But above all, we have Christ in us. And we have the hope of the resurrection to be thankful for. Every one of us here in this room, we're a believer, has Christ. And we have eternal life. And no matter how miserable your life is, you have that to be thankful for. You may be struggling in life, in life right now. You, you, your marriage may be in trouble. Your kids may be rebelling against you and God. You feel like you're always losing the battle with sin. But you have Christ and all His promises of eternal life. And for that, you can be infinitely thankful. And that's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. So instead of wanting what you don't have and what you can't have, we walk in love by just being thankful for what Christ has done for us. And if you can't be thankful for that, then there's a serious problem with your faith. And giving thanks deals with sexual sins by focusing our attention on God's perfect plan for sexuality. Once, once God created man who was defined as male by his body and woman that was defined as, as female by her body, God said that everything was very good. And we're thankful for that. Helps us put our minds in the right perspective. God designed sex to be a great activity for married couples. And if God designed it that way, that's the best way to experience it. So we're thankful for that as well. Now, why is Paul making a big deal about all this? Why he's spending so much time talking about sexual sins? Is that because God is a prude? No, because God cares for us. And and he goes back to the matter of identity that we've been talking quite a bit lately. And it's not a secret. Look at verse 5. He says, for this you know. Now, this could be translated know this, but there's great evidence that this means for this you know. Paul is not saying anything to them that's not already that they know. You know this. You know that a citizen of heaven, in verse 5, one who has inherited the kingdom of Christ and God by their adoption as sons of God is not identified by these sins. You have an identity. And that identity is a child of God redeemed by Jesus Christ. And if that's your identity, then these other things I'm discussing about, uh, about are not your identity. In other words, you're either a fornicator 
a covetous person, a foolish talker, etc., or you are a child of God. That's, that's simple as that. You can't be identified as both. And this is not the same thing as saying that you have to be morally perfect. But it does mean that if you are a believer, you are not going to live or think of yourself as a fornicator, and etc. You're going to see yourself as a child of God, and that these things that may be present in your life are things to be ashamed of, to repent and turn away from. And Paul says that we must not allow others to convince us otherwise. Look at verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Is it, what's the slogan today? Be open-minded. Right? And usually people will say be open-minded. People have very narrow minds. They've very, very decided what you need to be open-minded about. But there's such a thing as, as being too open-minded to the point that your brain just falls out. There are things that we don't, we're not supposed to be open-minded about. There are things that are set in stone that we don't need to be revisiting. For example, I'll carry it to the extreme just to point, make the point. Should, should, we, should husbands be open-minded about killing their wives? Probably not, right? I mean, can we say... <laughs> I look out and sometimes... Ah, mm, uh, no! You cannot be open-minded about that, right? doesn't matter what people say. Can we be open-minded about killing babies? Sadly, by the way they vote, a lot of people are saying that that's okay to be open-minded about killing babies. No, we can't be open-minded about that. And we cannot be open-minded about sexual sins either. It's not a matter of indifference. Paul says that this is serious because there's serious consequences for the, this sort of thinking and behavior. He says that the wrath of God in verse 6 comes upon those who practice these things and those who applaud them. That's how serious it is. The weight of the wrath of God comes upon people who think that these things are okay. And that's not a matter of indifference. That's not a matter of keeping our minds open. So we don't practice these things with the sons of disobedience because we are no longer in darkness. Look at verses 7 and 8. Therefore, do not be partakers with them, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the world. You notice that he doesn't say that we are in the light. He says we are light. As Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, that we are like the stars and the, bodily, the, the heavenly bodies that, that are light to the world. That's where we are. And we follow Jesus in that light. So instead of walking in the darkness of all of these sinful behaviors that Paul described here, we who are redeemed by Christ walk in love. We walk in humble selflessness, giving of ourselves to those who are around us. We walk in Christ alone by the power of the cross as we seek to imitate Him in our lives. Let us pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word. We pray that your spirit would apply these things to our hearts, that we might walk in love. For us in Jesus' name, amen.